Romans 8, 1 through 30. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
This reading is from Numbers 11, verses 24 through 30. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Isaiah 59, 20 and 21. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Luke eleven nine through 13. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Would you pray with me one more time before we uh, unpack uh, the word of the Lord this morning? Lord, based on what Jackie just read, we do ask. Um, We ask that right now in this time, you would give us your spirit, that you would send him to us uh, to proclaim your word to us this morning, uh, to change our hearts, and to uh, make us, uh, to give us more love for you. Now we pray. We ask this uh, just confident and resting on uh, the promises of your word. Amen. Um, well, it's, uh, it should be clear uh, by now that this morning we'll be taking a break from our sermon, our sermon series in Luke, um, and this morning we're going to turn our attention instead to Romans chapter 8, that, that long passage that Krista read for us, to consider what it means to be people who have God's Spirit in us. You, you may have traced that through the readings where we begin in Numbers And Moses was saying, oh, if only all the people could have the Spirit. And then we went to Isaiah, 
Um, and, and we heard the, the prophecy that, indeed, God will give his spirit to all of his people. And then uh, we ended up in Romans and, and Luke, where uh, this is exactly what has happened. Uh, the spirit has been given. It has been poured out um, on everyone who uh, follows Jesus. And so uh, that's where we're going. Uh, before we get there, I, w- I want to just pause for a minute. I want you to think just for a moment about how you arrived here uh, to worship this morning. We, we live in the suburbs, which means that I would guess every one of you pulled into the parking lot over here in, in your car, in a, in a vehicle of some sort. Uh, you didn't walk. You didn't come by horseback. You didn't fly. Probably, Don, did you fly today? No. He drove? Okay, all right, I'm right. Yeah, you, you came in a car. You, you opened the door, you got in, you put the key in the ignition, you turned it, you put the car into gear, you um, accelerated, and you were on your way. And that's because life in the suburbs uh, means that driving is just part of our, our normal day experience. We depend daily on the power of gasoline engines to get us where we need to go, whether that's work or school or or Sunday worship. In Romans 8, I think what we're seeing across those 30 verses that we read, they're just packed full of truth. I, I think the main thing that comes out of them is that the Holy Spirit plays a similar, though much more profound, role in everyday Christian life. As followers of Jesus, we start out in this world, but this world is not our ultimate destination. We anticipate a a homecoming. We, We heard part of that in what Krista read. There's this future glory, a reborn creation, where we will get to live with God face to face forever, loving him perfectly, being without sin, suffering will no longer touch us, and getting from here to there requires not the power of a gasoline engine, but the power of God himself. And that power comes to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit is meant to be a daily part of Christian living. He's meant to be just a regular occurrence in your everyday life, just like your car is in your suburban life. Now, the problem that I find, and and maybe the problem that you find, is that often we're much more familiar with uh, getting in our car and driving across town than we are with what it means to live in the Spirit. And so what I want to do this morning is just take us through Romans 8, 1 through 30, and I want to make five observations briefly about how the Holy Spirit empowers Christian living. And, and my hope is that in just a few minutes, we'll all be uh, more familiar with how the Spirit works, and we will more deeply desire him to actually be active uh, this afternoon and this evening and tomorrow as you get up and, and every day, um, even through this week. And so let's begin five ways, five observations for how the Spirit empowers everyday Christian living. The first one we find in verses 1 through 4, and it's simply this. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, frees you for righteousness. The very first verse in Romans chapter 8 is a pretty familiar one. You may have heard it before. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, 
Condemnation is a, is a legal word. It means the penalty, uh, just penalty, deserved someone. It, it, it's, it's for the guilty. It's for those who have transgressed some law. And it's saying that, well, for those in Christ Jesus, though they are sinners, though they have committed sin, there is no condemnation. Well, why is that? Why? How is there no condemnation? Verse 2 says that the law of the spirit of life, so there's, there's the first instance of the Holy Spirit we see in this chapter. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. And then verse 3 tells us that this happened as Jesus hung on the cross, as he hung paying our very penalty. And so Jesus died receiving the condemnation that our sins deserve so that condemnation no longer rests on any of you or on me. Verse 4 then tells us why God did this. Why did God put our condemnation onto Jesus in this way? Verse 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit. Because I think it's important for us to see those two different references to the Holy Spirit and how they relate. If you, if you still have your Bible open, this might be a little easier to see. And so I, I invite you to, to keep it open. Verse 2 told us that whenever anyone repents of their sin, whenever anyone turns to Jesus, when they realize that they are facing condemnation from God, and they say, Lord, I need you. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to take away this evil from me. I need you to swallow up the condemnation that I deserve. What is happening in that very moment, it's not merely a work of the mind. It's not merely an intellectual affirmation that, okay, I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died for my sins and so I'm just working out this kind of mental equation and I therefore believe. That moment of faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, the freedom you felt in believing the gospel, in believing that, yes, Jesus took the condemnation, that condemnation from me, the freedom you felt, well, it wasn't just merely the power of positive thinking. It wasn't some emotional crutch that got you over your sense of guilt. The freedom you felt was the very power of God in the person of the Spirit cutting the ties between you and your sinful past. The Holy Spirit, even from that first moment of saving faith, declares you righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice for you. The Spirit declared you free from all of your sin and all of your guilt. That's verse 2. Now the Spirit does that great work in verse 2 for the purpose stated in verse 4. That we would walk or, or live according to the Spirit as people who fulfill righteousness. Do, do you see that? Do you see the Spirit referenced in verse 2 and for the purpose stated in verse 4? The Spirit declares us righteous in verse 2, so that we will walk in righteousness by the Spirit in verse 4. 
And so what we see here, brothers and sisters, is is that the freedom we are given is a freedom to choose to live rightly before God. We can now choose. We have the power to choose to honor God. We have the power to uh, sincerely love God, to fully obey God, rather than living for ourselves, which we all do apart from that spirit-filled work. And so this freedom, it's not just something we achieve. It's not, it's, it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's the result of the Holy Spirit's power at work in you. And so the, the first way that the Spirit works just in daily Christian life is that he frees you and me to walk righteously. Now, now the next four observations are, are really just an impacting of that one. Of, of how this works, how, how does this freedom work, and how are we to be um, free to live righteously by the Spirit. The next observation from verses 5 through 8 is that the Spirit reorients all of us toward God. Now, now on our way to this idea of, of being reoriented to God, the Apostle Paul tells us something very important about our minds. So look at verse 5 uh, with me for just a minute. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, My paraphrase for what that means is is simply that what your mind is set on, whatever captivates your thoughts when you're not actively thinking about something else, that reveals what you live for. Um, And so if if in those moments your mind is set on the flesh, on earthly possessions or comforts or earthly security, reputation, etc., well then what Paul's saying is, is you're living according to the flesh. If that's all your mind is filled with, that's just fleshly living. But if your mind is set on the spirit, if, if what fills your thoughts are, are God's splendors and the, the reality of the gospel and the greatness of the mission of Jesus to, to spread the news of this gospel, if, if that's what fills your thoughts, well, then you're living, what you're living for is, is the things of God. You're, you're living according to the spirit. Again, naturally, we all live according to the flesh. We, we've all had that experience. Everyone on planet Earth has lived that way, where we focus and, and are only concerned about our own earthly good. And verse 7 tells us that, that because of this, we are, our, our orientation to God is one of hostility. We are actually incapable of submitting to him unless the Spirit intervenes. And, and it's, it's easy to imagine this. Perhaps you remember this if you, if you are saved today. We, we are unable to obey God because we don't care much for him. Maybe we find him boring. Maybe we just don't want him meddling in our business. Or, or we don't like him telling us what to do. The only way out of this dilemma, out of this hostile relationship to God is for the Spirit to enter us and quite literally change our minds. We need the Spirit to reorient us to God, to to fill our minds with adoration for him, to fill us with longing to be with him and dependence upon him and faith that, yes, his promises are true, 
And what these verses tell us is that as the Spirit fills our minds with those things, we experience, in verse 6, true life and peace. Now, now just to be clear, it's, it's the presence of the Spirit that is key to this change of mind and that resulting life and peace. This is, uh, this is not uh, you know, self-help. Um, this is not the result of just exercising more or uh, eating healthy or getting the right amount of leisure. It comes only from the Spirit reorienting us to God and filling our minds with thoughts and desires for him. And so the the first observation was that the Spirit frees you for righteousness. Secondly, the Spirit reorients you to God. Third, the Spirit puts Christ in you. We see this in verses 9 through 11. So look at, uh, starting in verse 9 with me. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Uh, in verse 9, we, we bump up against the Trinity, don't we? Did you, did you catch that? The Holy Spirit's referred to by two names. Uh, he's first called the Spirit of God, and then he's called the Spirit of, of Christ, which is, is simply just to say, you know, here's another evidence that we serve a three-in-one God, um, that, that the Holy Spirit could be called both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. But um, I think the Apostle Paul is drawing specific emphasis to the idea that the Spirit is Jesus' Spirit, that he is the Spirit of Christ, because then verse 10 begins and, and reiterates, but if Christ is in you. Okay, so, so here we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, but if Christ is in you. And so the emphasis here is that Christ is in you if you have the Holy Spirit. And then verse 10 ends with, well, if Christ is in you, then the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And, and, and that's a strange way to talk. I, it took me a while to, uh, to think, well, what does that mean? What, what's Paul actually referring to here? And so let me give you my answer. What does that mean that if Christ is in you, then the Spirit is life because of righteousness? I think what we're meant to take from this section is, that, is to remember that Jesus is God's righteous Son. Um, the, the prophet Isaiah referred to him as the righteous servant, Um, The Apostle John referred to him as Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus was was so righteous that when he died a sinner's death, uh, he came out of the tomb, right? Um, God raised him from the dead, and, and death could not cover over the righteousness of God, but instead he sprung back to life. Paul's drawing attention to to the idea that that person, that Jesus is in you if you are a Christian. Um, I, I, don't, I don't particularly follow all of the, the Marvel and comic book movies, but you, you might be familiar with, with Iron Man. Uh, he's the guy with like the glowing circle in his chest. 
I did, I did happen to see that movie. And, and the, the plot happens where um, a man, Tony Stark, invents a new power source, and he's dying, I think, from a heart condition, and he implants this power source in himself. And that's what, like, is the basis of the whole superhero dimension of that story. It's what gives him all of these superpowers through a suit that, you know, whatever, I won't bore you with the details. But the idea is he has this glowing thing in his chest, and that's like a power source in him that makes him Iron Man. And I think Paul is saying, I think, I think Marvel Comics kind of ripped that from Romans 8, because I think Paul's saying the same thing. When the Spirit comes inside of you, you have this, like, reactor of righteousness in you that can't help it can't be covered over. It just can't help start to come out in the way you think and act toward others and, and the way you love God and, and the way you behave. That's what I think it means, but Christ is in you and the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There's just this reactor of righteousness radiating out from the Spirit being in you. If this is the way things are, well then... There's just zero chance that, that we can be Christians in name only, right? Like the very character of Jesus has got to be coming out in some way through our lives. If death could not hide the righteousness of Jesus, then surely we cannot either. And his life would be made known through the way we live. And once you know, that's exactly what Paul says in the next verse, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, by which I think he means like spiritual life, righteous life. That's, that's what life has meant the whole way through this chapter. He will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so that's one of the dimensions of just being a spirit-filled person, of being a Christian. You have, you have this power source of righteousness that progressively, day by day, radiates more and more of Jesus' own character in the way you live. This is just simply what the Spirit does. Next, number four. The Spirit urges you to live like sons. Uh, We see this in verses 12 through 17, and there's so much of these verses about our adoption as as sons. Um, I wish we had more time. For for today, I simply want you to note how how these next verses build on that kind of reactor of righteousness idea, but take it a step even further. If Christ is in you, you also have this this, uh, sonship radiating out from you. Look at verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, so everyone who has the Spirit, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's just a a close, familiar term for a father. Dad. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
This is beautiful. What this means is that Christians, because we have the Spirit within us, we should not constantly wonder, well, uh, am I God's child? Does he really love me? Now, I think we, we, it's common to struggle with that at times, but that should not be our overarching experience. What our overarching experience should be is that we have this, this other presence in us. We have the Holy Spirit within us saying again and again to God, you're my father, you're my dad. I love you. I want to please you. I know you love me. Because Christ, the Son of God, is in you, that, that sonship dynamic just, just applies to you. You become sons and, and daughters. Ladies, you're not left out. We become children of God. The son-like love that Jesus has for his Father is now poured into our hearts by the Spirit. And so it's not surprisingly that, that being led by the Spirit means that you and I now live like a son. We find ourselves indebted, to use the language of verse 12, indebted not to the flesh and to our sinfulness, but to the loving kindness of our Father. We, we find ourselves regularly amazed that God would love me, that, that he would want to be my Father. And the result is that our spirit-empowered love for God now urges us, propels us to put to death the deeds of the body, verse 13. Isn't this amazing? We stood under condemnation only 13 verses ago, and here we are, by the power of the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body that led to that condemnation. Only the Spirit can do that. Your willpower can't do that. You might be the most driven person in the world, but we need the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, to give us victory over our remaining sin. The Spirit is that power. Fifthly, uh, this is the, the last observation from the text. The Spirit helps you endure suffering. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, if you're a Christian, that verse makes your destination clear, doesn't it? Incomparable glory in the presence of God. That's where you're headed. That's the road that, that Jesus has put you on. But it also... This verse also tells us the path that we must travel to that destination, which are, is the sufferings of this present time. Now, I don't have to tell you that suffering, it, it comes in all shapes and sizes. It might be the friend who wrongs you, the spouse who rejects you, the child that you realize is not going to recover the car repairs that you can't afford, the diagnosis you hoped you wouldn't hear, that past trauma that keeps resurfacing in your mind, maybe it's the anxiety that keeps you up at night, 
or the fears that haunt you. Everybody experiences suffering because, according to verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. And so since sin has entered the world, there's just all kinds of brokenness and sorrow, calamity. Creation itself is is groaning under this broken state. And then we read verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who, even who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I would guess that we wouldn't have to talk long before you could uh, relate to me how, how you've been in that place of just groaning. Maybe it was something very severe and significant that happened to you. Maybe the thing itself wasn't that significant, but this is the hundredth time it's happened. I'm just tired of it. I can't do it anymore. We've all groaned under just the futility of being broken people in a broken world. What is your hope to endure that kind of suffering with joy and obedience to God. How are you going to do it? Our hope is that God's Spirit dwells within us. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the very will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you realize that the reason why the church throughout history has quoted verse 28 so much, that all things work for good, want to remember that, you need to remember that, we tell each other that, oh, remember, God works all things for good. All things do not work for your good because God removes your suffering. If that's the way this worked, Verse 28 would never have to be remembered. It would never have to be told to anybody because, of course, all things work for our good. All things work for your good because in and through your suffering, the Holy Spirit is within you, groaning, interceding for you according to the will of God. And God hears, and he sustains, and he supports you. The good that you and I receive by enduring trials in this way is a spiritual good. It's it's not always or merely physical. It's, It's not that the suffering gets removed most times. It's a spiritual good, an eternal good, namely, according to verse 29, that you and I would be, quote, conformed to the image of God's Son. That's the good that comes to you through your trials, 
And that's really good news if you're a Christian and a person who longs to be where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God, glorified forever, enjoying God as your Father. If that's where you want to go, then it's really good news that the Spirit helps you endure suffering and uses even the pain and the trials, the inconveniences to make you more like Jesus, the Son of God. It's good news. That's how he works all things together for your good. Makes you more like Jesus. So those are the the five observations I wanted to bring up. What we've seen in these verses is just, I I hope what you've seen, what I've seen is just a vivid display of how crucial the Holy Spirit is for my everyday Christian life. And I think the question that kind of hangs over us from this text goes something like this. Well, to what extent does this depiction characterize my life? And to what extent does it characterize your life? When you read Romans 8, where is there dissonance? Is there there difference? Is there a gap? And so, yes, the Spirit frees us for righteousness. So is your life characterized by the freedom to do good, mostly characterized by bondage to sin? Yes, the Spirit reorients us to God. So are you actively and regularly moving toward God, or are you content with staying distant from him? The Spirit puts Christ in us. And so to what degree do you you find that reactor of righteousness, certainly not perfectly, but progressively radiating out patterns of Christ-likeness in your thoughts and attitudes, your behaviors? The Spirit urges us to live like sons. And so are you and I putting sin to death because we're more and more sure that we are God's beloved child. The Spirit helps us endure suffering. And so do you see the challenges and the trials in your life making you more like Jesus? Is Is that true of you when you look back over your life? And are you happy about that? Is that good news to you? Friends, the worst thing, the worst thing that can come from honestly reflecting on these questions is that we might realize that the Spirit is not in us at all. And even if that's the case, there is hope. We we heard from Jackie uh, when she read Luke 11 that the Father loves to give the Spirit to any who ask. And that's all we have to do. If you, if you look across your life and, and, and just see, how good, I don't see the Spirit here at all. If that's true, well, the only thing keeping that from changing is repenting, turning from sin, saying, yes, I believe Jesus' sacrifice is enough for me. Father, would you give me the Spirit? Take away my condemnation. Give me the Spirit. And it can all be different. And if by reflecting on those questions you do see the Spirit at work, but you want more of him, the very same thing is true. 
We can simply ask our Father to give us more of His Spirit. It's not really that difficult. There's not like a 12-step program. You don't have to go through a book. Like, there's no work to do. It's just asking. He is a good Father, and He loves to give His Spirit to you and to me. And as we enter each day, we can look for ways to depend upon the Spirit's wisdom and strength instead of our own. We can give ourselves to the the reading of God's word, which the Spirit has inspired. We can give ourselves to prayer, which the Spirit enables. We can give ourselves to fellowship with other Christians, other, other people who have also been filled with the Spirit. We can work and labor toward evangelism and sharing the gospel. We might actually see the Spirit fall on others. This is just our everyday existence as Christians. When we, live, when we strive to live the Christian life in our own strength apart from the Spirit, it's like you trying to get to this church parking lot by pushing your car across town. It's miserable. You wouldn't do that. No, you would get in the car and turn on the engine. God has given us his Spirit to be the very power that gets us through this life as happy, faithful sons and daughters of God. And so, brothers and sisters, let Romans 8 just encourage you and exhort you to live each day asking the Spirit to be more at work in you. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, we we have seen from your word just this great gift that, that we have That if we have um, confessed Christ, if we have placed our trust in him, if we have staked our lives upon him, you have not left us alone, but you have given us your spirit. And I thank you for that. I thank you for this uh, just vivid picture of what life in the spirit looks like. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to... um, experience more of him, to know him more, to follow him more, to trust him more, to rely on him more, and that we would see all of these aspects of Christian life in Romans 8 coming through more and more in the way we live in our very lives, and would we be amazed at your grace that does these things. Thank you, Father, for saving us and for putting the Spirit in us. Amen.